The readings from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, starting at 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who's trampled the Son of God underfoot, who's treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who's insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you'd received the light when, you'd, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the conversation, confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you'll receive what he's promised. For in just a little while, he who's coming will come and will not delay. And my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we don't belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. This is God's word. Thank you very much, Andy, for reading tonight's passage for us. Uh, Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage this evening, we we thank you for it. We pray, Father, that you would help us as we look at it together. We pray that you would challenge those of us that need challenging, encourage those of us who need encouraging, and cause all of us to look more to your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Let me take you back to the summer of 1972. We're in Munich, it's the Summer Olympics, and 15 runners are about to set off for the final of the 10,000 metres. 28 or 29 minutes of gruelling racing to try and win that gold medal. The gun goes off, and they all jostle for position as the race unfolds. Everyone starts to settle down and look comfortable, strangely comfortable, considering the pace that they're going, until... Lap 12, round the bend, someone is in the wrong place, legs tangle, two runners fall, and with it their dreams of winning an Olympic gold medal have gone. Except, perhaps not. One of them, Lasse Viren, gets straight back to his feet. He starts running again. The leading pack are halfway down the straight now. Surely if he makes it back to the pack, well, all the energy he's used to catch them back up will mean towards the end of the race his tank will be empty. He won't have anything left for the final dash towards the line. 
Well, with exceptional speed, he does manage to catch them up. He sits tight for the next 11 laps. There's only one and a half laps left now. Where was Viren? Well, he was, about to, he was getting ready to kick off, to leave the tra- pack trailing in his wake, 600 metres out from the finishing line. Only one other runner was able to keep up with him, but surely he wouldn't have enough to keep him going over the line. Well, somehow he managed to hold his position and cross the line in first place, winning the gold medal. Not only that, but he also broke the world record for the 10,000 metres that day. Despite falling, despite having to catch up with a leading pack, despite deciding to break away an unprecedented 600 metres before the finish line. So what did Viren have that day? He had extraordinary perseverance. There was no way he should have won that race after falling, but he did. He kept going when hope of a medal was all but gone. What do you think is needed in order to persevere? Well, in sport, you might think it's mental strength, the ability to endure when your body is in pain and just wants to quit, the ability to put your mistakes behind you and push on. But what about in the Christian life? What do we need in order to persevere in following Jesus? Now, sometimes perseverance will come quite easily to us. We'll be riding high, following Jesus feels straightforward, simple, the obvious thing to do. But as C.S. Lewis wrote, it is a fact of Christian experience that life is a series of troughs and peaks. Those troughs might come for a whole variety of reasons. We may be suffering, we may be tempted, we may feel discouraged, or we may feel that the promises that God has made in his word just feel so far away from being fulfilled. It's here that the human inclination to give up on Jesus is at one of its strongest points. Thoughts may creep into our minds about leaving him. What benefit do I have in following him? So we need perseverance. We need to keep going. This tendency to give up, this inclination, this temptation, when people actually do turn their back on Christ and reject him, it's it's painful. But it shouldn't surprise us. The New Testament warns us in principle and in example that not all professing Christians will be saved. Some who profess Christ as their saviour now will not profess Christ as their saviour in the future. So what stops us from entering into that group of people? What keeps us walking with Jesus rather than walking away from Jesus? Well, praise God, we have this passage in front of us this evening. Now, the author of Hebrews has taken his readers on a journey over the last couple of chapters. We've seen throughout the past few weeks that Jesus is the high priest of a better covenant than the Mosaic one. His sacrifice was superior to the sacrifices required by the Mosaic covenant. Why? Because his sacrifice brings complete forgiveness of sins eternal salvation, and purified consciences. It's a sacrifice that doesn't need repeating time after time after time, but was once and for all. The author wants to give his readers the confidence that because of who Christ is and what his sacrifice has accomplished, we can draw near to God. 
That's been the journey over the last few weeks. And his aim in this passage is to encourage his readers to continue on having that confidence to draw near to God, to persevere in trusting Jesus, the great high priest. He does that, as we will see, by warning, by reminding them of faith in the past, and by reminding them of future reward. So he tells them to look in three places, to look out, to look back, and to look forward. Firstly, look out. Every day we see warning signs, don't we? Red triangles dotted about the road as we drive around. And let's be honest, we probably ignore most of them or just pass them, give them a passing glance. Except when we're driving somewhere, we don't know. There's a confusing junction up ahead. We look for all the warning signs at that point. We know we have to heed the warnings because if we don't, something could easily go wrong. We could end up in the wrong lane, go the wrong way. We could end up crashing. But if we do heed the warnings, we'll be kept safe. This warning that we've got in Scripture here is one we must pay attention to in order to persevere. We shouldn't ignore it. We shouldn't give it a passing glance. It's important for us to be aware of the dangers now and up ahead. But what is the warning? What is inside the red triangle? What's inside the warning sign in this passage? It's apostasy. It's decisively turning away from faith, from a position of claiming to be a follower of Jesus. Let's have a look down at the text. Verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. This verse is a little bit complex, so let's, let's break it down. What is meant by deliberately keep on sinning? Now, it doesn't mean the times we fail in the struggle against sin. No Christian is sinless. We all have our struggles with sin, our temptations. We will all sin. Now, that's obviously not good, but it's not what this passage is talking about. Instead, it's warning us against willful apostasy, deliberate rejection of Christ. We'll come on to what that looks like in the next few verses. So next on in this verse, what is meant by received the knowledge of the truth? Well, the people in view here are those who have been exposed to the truth, but were not genuine Christians. What might that look like? Well, knowledge of Christ and the truth does not make someone a Christian. You can have a fantastic picture of the Christian faith. You could come to church every week, twice, every Sunday. And you could know the scriptures intimately without them ever penetrating to your soul and changing you. So the people in view here have been exposed to the truth, but they're not living in it. They're not following it. Next in this verse, no sacrifice for sins is left. We've found as we've been going through Hebrews, and in fact the whole testament of the Bible is there was only one possible way to deal with sin and come to the Father. And that's through the great high priest, Jesus Christ. There is nowhere else to go for those who reject him. No other sacrifice for sins can be acceptable to the Father. It's not going to be enough. Jesus is the only one who can pay the punishment for our sins. 
So we could summarize verse 26 like this. If we deliberately keep on rejecting and opposing Christ, after we've received knowledge of him, there is nowhere else to go to deal with sin. And then we get to verse 27, the consequences of opposing him. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. That's an uncomfortable reading, isn't it? And that's precisely the point of the warning. The Bible tells us that all will face judgment. We may feel ashamed or embarrassed by that, but the Bible is not. It's quite clear. Turning our back on Jesus leads to real consequences. Also, severe consequences. Let's keep reading. Verse 28. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? So we have here an argument from the lesser to the greater, the lesser being the Mosaic law, the greater being the covenant of Christ. Under the Mosaic law as given in the Old Testament, those who blasphemed God or, or worshipped idols, they were to be put to death. That was God's commandment. If that was true for a, a lesser, weaker covenant, what should we expect from the superior covenant? Well, these verses tell us that a much worse, worse punishment can be expected for those who deliberately do three things. Firstly, trample the Son of God underfoot. Secondly, treat the blood of Jesus as unholy. Thirdly, insult the spirit of grace. Notice these actions aren't against the church or a group of Christians or Christianity as a religion. These are deliberate actions against the Lord himself, stamping on him, mocking him for dying, treating his death like the death of anyone, insulting the one who offers grace and forgiveness in the light of judgment. This here is a description of outright apostasy. And it's hard to hear. Yet this warning is, for, is here for all of those who claim to follow Christ. There's a traffic sign, a warning sign. You've probably seen it at some point with a harbour or a quayside and a car falling off the harbour into the water. What do you see? What, how do you react when you see that sign? Well, obviously we think to ourselves, I'm grateful for that warning. I'll stay well clear of the edge. I know the consequences will be bad if I get too close. That's the wise response. A rebellious person who has perhaps seen the sea from a distance, seen the sign as they're getting closer, and they respond with, huh, I wonder what the sea looks like from up here. I wonder how choppy it is. I wonder, I wonder if I can have a peek. I wonder how close I can park my car to the edge to see what's below. The rebellious person knows the truth. Bad things will happen if they get too close to the edge, but they don't heed the warning. They need to be unsettled by their response to it. They need to look out. But the wise one who heeds the warning, they steer well clear. They're thankful for it. 
they obey it and they're kept safe. They do not need to worry about, at all about the consequences of ignoring it. You see, the warning here in Scripture isn't designed to unsettle or worry the genuine Christian, the one who hears the warning and sees it as a call to faith, to obedience, and to perseverance. Those who trust in Christ are totally safe, just as the wise driver is totally safe from falling into the sea if they heed the warning. Just hear the words of Jesus from John chapter 10. My sheep, he's talking there about his people, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Genuine Christians are safe in the strong hands of Jesus. Not only that, they're, they're safe in, to, in, in the strong arms of the Father, the one who's greater than all. Nobody is strong enough to wrestle themselves or anyone else out of God's hands. But the warning is there to shake up those who are tempted to turn their back on the great high priest, despite knowing the truth, despite claiming to follow him. Those who are perhaps beginning in their mind to drift away from faith and belief. Those who, as we saw in verse 20, 25 last week, have made a habit of not meeting together with other believers. This warning is for them. And what are the consequences of ignoring the warning? Verse 30. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. The one they stamp on, the one they reject, the one whose blood they treat as unholy, the one they insult, this is also the one who will judge them. Verse 31 says, It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So pay attention to the warning. Be thankful for it. Obey it. Steer well clear from the edge. Use it as a motivation for perseverance. Keep looking out. Whilst this warning here is specifically for people who claim to follow Jesus and are thinking of turning away from him, there is something to be said to those who are not following him and don't claim to be. Perhaps you're here tonight exploring who Jesus is, or maybe you've not quite made the decision to follow him yet. It might be hard for you right now to think of reasons why Christians would follow a God who brings a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire, as we read here. Why would I want to follow him? Why would, how could I possibly associate myself with him? Well, the Bible teaches that one day all will have to give account to God. All will stand in front of his judgment seats, whether they claim to follow him or not. But don't be quick to see God as a mean, stern, angry judge without compassion or love. Yes, God is just and he will judge justly. But the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich 
in love. That's from Psalm 145. And if, if we were to plump the depths of God's heart, we would find that it is not hard or cold or brittle or angry. Instead, we would find a heart bursting full of love and compassion. We see that most clearly when we look at Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus came from heaven in love for you. He lived a perfect life, showing grace and mercy to sinners like you, showing you the depths of his compassion. He died on the cross, achieving for you what is impossible for you to do on your own. So please don't turn your back on him. Come to him and find the rich rewards that he promises. How else does the author encourage his readers to persevere in faith? Well, he tells them to look back, to look back, to recall what has gone before and what the outcome was. Have a look down, verse 32. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you had endured in a great conflict full of suffering. The imagery here is of a great athletic contest. They were involved in a heavyweight brawl full of suffering. What did the contest look like? Well, they were publicly insulted and persecuted. They suffered along with those in prison. They joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. You might be wondering why the author is reminding them of this time. It sounds pretty terrible, doesn't it? Victims of insult, suffering and thieving on account of their faith. Surely, if you want to encourage your readers to persevere in following Jesus, you don't remind them how difficult it can get, do you? But the author also reminds them that they endured. When there was really no way they should have, when it was full of suffering, they kept on going, they persevered. Not only that, but let's have a look at the results of their suffering. Verse 33. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. So they were insulted and persecuted. But what resulted from that? Greater partnership with other believers who faced likewise. They loved one another better. Verse 34. You suffered along with those in prison. So they suffered along with the hopeless, the needy, the captive. Presumably they provided materially for them and visited them in prison. It also says you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. They were victims of theft but accepted this with joy. How could they do that? Isn't the natural response to having our things stolen, to be angry. We don't accept this with joy, do we? Well, let's keep reading. Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. What were those better and lasting possessions? Well, we'll find out in our final point. But for now, see how in all of these things described here, in the midst of their heavyweight brawl, As many black eyes and broken teeth and cracked ribs they suffered, they endured. And God used that perseverance through suffering to strengthen them, to change them, to make them more like Christ. And that's true for all Christians. It's true for us today. 
God uses our perseverance, our endurance through suffering to change us, to make us more Christ-like. And we know certainly that these times will come our way. Here's an interesting question for you to consider. If you were to look back throughout your Christian life, however long that has been, how much progress would you say has been made in times of success and plenty? Now, compare that with the progress made during times of failure, of disappointment, of pain. It might not feel like it when you're in the midst of those times. It might not even feel like it for a number of years afterwards. But I'm sure that one day you will be able to look back and conclude that the periods of greatest growth were the times of anguish and struggle. So how do we persevere when we're in the midst of suffering, in the midst of a heavyweight brawl? Well, we look back. We look back at the times we've endured in the past. We see how God has carried us through them. We see the growth. We see how we've become a little bit more like Christ in those times. And we can look even further back than that too. We can look back to the greatest contest in history where the victor endured unimaginable suffering, when he was rejected, whipped, hung on the cross in shame, killed and was separated from the Father, his Father in heaven, to bring us back to him. So we can take comfort from the fact that we are never alone. We are never alone in suffering. We have a great high priest who suffers alongside us. In fact, we also have a a whole church of people who suffer alongside us as well. Perseverance and endurance in the midst of a heavyweight battle isn't a one-on-one fight. It's tag team. Look how the Christians stood side by side with one another here. And as a church, we do likewise. We, we pray together. We encourage one another in love, in service. Just remember that when you're up to your neck in suffering and feel like persevering is impossible. And when you're not, think, who needs your help? Which one of your brothers and sisters in the church or in your small and local group needs standing with? Is there someone in church you haven't seen for a while? Who needs you. So how to persevere. Look out, look back, and lastly, look forward. When Lassie Viren fell over in that race in 1972 and started sprinting to catch up with the leading pack, there must have been a part of him that thought, is this worth it? I could just bow out now, save my energy and my legs for the 5,000 meters that's coming in a day or two. As we know, he kept going. The reward drove him. The image of him standing on the top of the podium, the gold medal wrapped around his neck, the Finnish national anthem blaring across the stadium. Is it worth the effort for us to persevere in the Christian life? Is running the race worth the reward at the end? Well, the author now turns his reader's attention to the future. Persevere by looking forward, he says. Verse 35. So, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. A rich reward in the future is coming. If we hold on to the confidence we have, 
What is that confidence? Is it the confidence we have in ourselves, in our own ability, a bit like the confidence that Viren must have had in himself? Well, the journey that we've seen over the last few weeks that the author of Hebrews has taken us on has been for the aim of giving us confidence. Confidence on the basis of Christ's priestly ministry. Confidence based on the blood of Jesus. And what are they to be confident in? Well, that they, through Christ, can draw near to God. We looked at that verse 19 last week. And here he's saying to them, do not throw this away. So what is the reward of having confidence? Well, it's coming to God today, drawing, here, drawing near to him now. And what will you find when you do that? Well, you'll find peace. Not in the sense that you won't face more trials in your Christian life, but peace with God and peace through God. And in drawing near to him, you will also find joy, like King David, who wrote in Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy. And in drawing near to him, you'll find a most wonderful saviour, one who has paid for our sins, one who sympathises with us in our weaknesses, one who purifies our consciences, one who gives us rest, one who says, never will I leave you or forsake you, one who delights to hear our prayers. Those are the rewards we have now if we persevere. But the the author says there are also future rewards to come, better and lasting possessions. What does it mean that they are better and lasting? Well, better than anything we could have or anything that we could lose on earth. Possessions which can never be spent. Things that will more than make amends for anything that we have lost here on earth. These are our treasures stored up in heaven where moths and vermin cannot destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. But what are they? They are entering into eternal life with him. Seeing our saviour, our great high priest, face to face, being with him forever. These wonderful truths are guaranteed because of three certainties we find in verses 36 to 38. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come. And will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. So these three certainties. Number one, having done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. What is God's will? Well, in this context, it is persevering in faith. Certainty number two. Jesus is coming in just a little while. The race is almost run. Keep on going to claim the prize. Certainty number three, my righteous one will live by faith. Through God's purposes, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through scripture, including warning passages like this, through encouragements, through suffering, through the church, through all these means and others, God's righteous one will live by faith. We praise God 
for this passage, which warns us of the consequences of not persevering, but also teaches us to remember our endurance and his purpose, purposes in suffering, and to look forward to his return and the rich rewards which await us. So how do we persevere? We look out, we look back, and we look forward. And then we will be able to say verse 39 with boldness. We do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we praise you that we can have the confidence to draw near to you through Christ, our great high priest. We pray that we would not throw away that confidence. Father, help us to endure, help us to persevere, particularly in times of suffering and struggle. Father, may may we be wise in heeding the warning here. And we pray that looking back and looking forward would give us the encouragement we need to keep on with Christ this day and forever. In his name we pray. Amen.